Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We like to think of ourselves as really the creators of all of our own thoughts and even our own desires. That we're these very autonomous, independent people. The concept of mimetic desire really pushes back against that idea. Humans rely on other people who have to model a desire to us in order for us to even consider wanting that thing in the first place. If we don't have a model of desire for some object of desire, it's very unlikely, maybe impossible for us to even think about wanting that thing at all. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Mimetic desire. It's a term that has cropped up in all kinds of circles I hover in and around at the moment. The term was coined by the French polymath René Girard a couple of decades ago to describe how we desire things. We walk around thinking that we are unique and creative authors of our own wants and desires, that we really do like feathered eyebrows and cutaway dresses and Positano as a dream holiday destination. But, says Gerard, all we are doing is copying other people's wants and desires. The implications of this truth are profound. Some branding advertising dudes I met with one night couldn't get enough of Gerard. It was the first time I'd actually heard his name mentioned and I had to Google the guy. In sociological circles, he's known as the Darwin of social behaviour. TED Talks are devoted to him. Tech bros quote him on tech bro podcasts. The sense makers froth over his writing. And Peter Thiel, the PayPal founder, Trump supporter and billionaire bunker builder, studied under him. When I went to look into it further, I came across Luke Burgess, who is my guest today here on Wild? Luke has written a book on Gerard's thesis called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And I invited Luke on to explain the big deal with mimetic desire, why it's regarded as such a wild idea and how we might be able to use it, well, for some good. So Luke is what is referred to as a principled entrepreneur. He's built businesses geared at making life better. He's been the founder and CEO of multiple social impact companies and was named one of the top 25 entrepreneurs under 25 by Business Week. Now he is a professor of business at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where he teaches on the purpose and meaning of business itself. He also writes for Wired Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Literary Hub and hundreds of other outlets. And his most recent book, 
What Do You Know is all about the world's current fascination with Renee Girard. The thing about this phenomenon of mimetic desire, according to those who froth over it, is that it's able to explain so incredibly much of human behaviour, particularly today. It also explains why and how we get into conflict. It's not because of our differences, it's because we're all mimicking each other. It also explains why scapegoats, sacrificial victims, are such a feature of our lives today and necessary to take on the sins of the collective. We'll get to all of this in a moment. It's kind of what the trolls intuitively seem to know and what morally bankrupt politicians and Peter Thiel are clued onto, but the rest of us are yet to understand. It also sheds light on whether there is in fact a way to live a life we want rather than the one all the bloody Joneses are living. Okay, let's meet Luke Burgess. Luke, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild. Thank you so much for having me on, Sarah. Look, I think we need to start with a bit of a description of what mimetic desire is. And if you could also, at the same time, give a top-line debunking of the idea that, unlike other animals on the planet, we don't actually have an internal radar for what we want out of our lives, despite what we think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Mimetic desire is uh, a way of saying that our desires are primarily imitative. Mimetic is a fancy word that comes from the Greek word mimistai, which simply means to imitate. So it's a form of imitative desire. And you know, we humans, we like to think of ourselves as really the creators of, you know, all of our own thoughts and, and even our own desires. That we're these very autonomous, independent people. And the, the concept of mimetic desire really pushes back against that idea, really destroys it when you fully understand it. And, you know, we, we imitate all kinds of things, right? But we normally restrict our understanding of imitation to the kind of superficial things, right? Like pretty obvious that we imitate, you know, cultural norms and we imitate speaking. It's how we learn language in the first place. We imitate maybe styles of dressing, all, all these things, right? But we, we often don't realize that human beings as the most imitative creatures in the world, this is something that Aristotle said thousands of years ago, We actually are able to intuit the very desires of other people and to imitate what they want. And this is the thing that really blew my mind when I encountered this idea for the first time, which was put forward by a thinker named Rene Girard in the the early 60s, that a lot of the things that I want, I've, I've assumed that, you know, I have been the sole determiner of, of what those are. I wake up in the morning, you know, when I hit 35 and decided I wanted to run a half marathon, right? Just so happens that all my friends want to do the same thing, you know? And, you know, he call, call, calls that the romantic lie, you know, this, this idea, this romantic notion that I need only to lay eyes on something or someone or, or, or some idea to have that desire and make it my own. And Girard's idea was that, no, humans rely on other people, which he calls models of desire, who have to model a desire to us in order for us to even consider wanting that thing in the first place. If we don't have a model of desire for some object of desire, uh, it's very unlikely, maybe impossible for us to even think about wanting that thing at all. And, you know, this is kind of a real revolution in the way that we think about about human desire. So, 
you know, mimetic desire has all kinds of consequences, right? If this is true, then it, it has all, it means all kinds of things to our social lives because we're, we're social creatures and the very nature of our desire is social. And when this clicked for me, it explained all kinds of things in my own life. Everything from, you know, why I had certain romantic interests or, you know, infatuations when I was in junior high and high school to why I chose certain majors in college. And then I switched four or five times. And then I pursued jobs that I thought I really wanted until I had the right model leave that job. And then I was, I was like a, a, a real teeter-totter of desire for a very, very long time until my late 20s when I encountered these ideas. And that helped me understand a bit of my own past, a bit about how my own desires actually functioned. Yeah, it's also a very competitive thing, isn't it? Like you think about and use this example in your book, you know, the, the little kid, right, you know, it has got a play date over, you know, a two-year-old and they're, you know, playing and all of a sudden one child really wants a particular car from the toy box and all of a sudden all the other kids want that car. I mean, I think that's a an example. If anyone's struggling with what we're talking about here, I think that's the best example. And the point that yourself and, and Renee make is that we don't change. You know, that's every single thing we want is is created by these models, these people that grab the toy first from the toy box. I'm wondering, though, if you can explain if there is, in fact, an evolutionary basis for it and what that would be. Well, I mean, we animals are, are imitative as well, right? The difference between a humans and, and animals is that our imitation is kind of boundless because we can imitate, imitate really abstract things. So the idea of vengeance, for instance, is a very particular human thing, right? The idea that somebody could be walking around for 10 or 12 years, you know, wanting to get vengeance on another person, in some sense, imitating whatever hurt that was inflicted upon them by another person, right? So I think that our capacities for human imitation evolved with our capacity for abstract thought. So we sort of evolved beyond just the, you punch me in the shoulder and I punch you back in the shoulder. And oddly, you know, animals actually have some mechanisms where they'll very, very, very rarely fight to the death. You know, they have some kind of strange checks on how far their imitation goes. Humans, we're, we're different in that we our imitation can go a lot further than, than the animals. We, it's almost like we don't have an instinct to sort of check those drives that we have, right? So we can either make ourselves completely miserable by getting in rivalries with other humans that can last for an entire lifetime, tragically, or we can get in that kind of tit-for-tat, envious, rivalrous, sort of vengeful be- behavior. And Part of Gerard's thinking is that, you know, humans have had to devise ways to put brakes on our imitation because it's essentially infinite or limitless if we don't have brakes on it. So the real difference in in humans is that he would he would actually say that we had to sort of invent culture in order to manage our runaway imitation. So, for instance, things like taboos would be an example, right? Like we have all kinds of cultural norms and taboos and restrictions and prohibitions, which in some sense are there. I mean, some of them seem very strange to us, but he he would say that they're actually there to prevent runaway conflict and violence due to imitation. As weird as that sounds, you know, Gerard would actually link the invention of complex human culture to the fact that we are so imitative and we imitate in such a complex way that we have needed to invent checks and balances on that or else it would just be like 
a runaway war of all against all. I mean, I know that sounds very dark. I think in 2023, I don't think it sounds foreign. That's for sure. I think, you know, we are sitting back and wondering what the hell's going on in this world. And a lot of it does seem to be behaviour that is being mimicked, repeated, emulated. And of course, we'll get to social media and, and the impact of social media in a moment. But of course, that dials everything up, you know. I think anyone listening would be very alive to what you're talking about and what Rene Girard was talking about several decades ago. It almost feels like the fact that we we have no capacity to stop this imitative behaviour when it, for instance, could kill somebody else, even a loved one, suggests that maybe it's sort of a, a bug, not a feature. Why is it that we've got this, this behavioural quirk? You know, is it because it's a sh- a, such a handy shorthand from an evolutionary point of view that we've got such complex brains, we've got so much going on, so to be able to model certain behaviours to the nth degree just makes it a little easier for us, you know, and, and it kind of creates, I guess at a broader level, a cohesion if we're all behaving by the same mores and behaviours even if we don't like them. Yeah, uh, you know, Gerard would say that mimetic desire is not entirely negative. First of all, you would say it's not a necessary. Well, it's a it's a feature of human nature in that it allows us to be open to other beings and allows us to you know commune with them in one way, in a way that maybe in, in you know other animals, other creatures cannot. So it's a tremendously positive thing when mimetic desire is manifested in a positive way. I mean, even reciprocal love can be mimetic, right? The imitation of of some beautiful thing or some love for some shared thing, you know, between a husband and a wife or something. So there's all kinds of ways that mimesis plays out in, in positive ways. You know, and all good things can be subverted and become bad things if they, if they become twisted, right? If we use them in the wrong ways. So I think Gerard would say that it could it can become buggy, to use your word, when there's sort of a disordered competition, right? And things become a zero-sum game. When when mimetic desire, when it becomes rivalrous, right? So to use the example of the kids in the room, right? You know, you've got more than enough toys for everybody. You know, you send the toddlers loose in the room. One of them, you know, picks up the car, becomes fascinated with the car. And then there's the second and third and the fourth kids start playing with it. And all of a sudden they're fighting over it. That it creates conflict. There's this reciprocal desire. And it's like that one car becomes the only car in the room. And they forget that there's a bunch of other very cool toys. Let's even say equally cool toys in the room. And all of a sudden they forgot completely about them. So in some sense, it creates like an artificial scarcity. And, you know, in economics, we, we, you know, we think of scarcity as this, you know, very like physical, simple, concrete things. You know, there's Five of these things exist and there's 10 people, so those things are scarce. Gerard is saying that it's actually through this negative mimesis, this negative mimetic desire, that things become scarce at some abstract level, like in our own minds. And then we start to fight over them, you know, and it's a it's a real scare. It'd be, that turns into what we call the scarcity mindset. So, yeah, we lose sight of all of the the world of goods that are not scarce, all of these, you know, the things that we could be pursuing. You know, from a religious standpoint, you know, Gerard would probably link this to, you know, original sin or something like that, where, you know, humans somehow have 
have deviated desires or seek some kind of deviated transcendence that manifests itself in the, in the wrong ways. So that's getting a little bit theological, but it's, it's really fascinating that you're asking just the right question, right? Like why, why does it so often become negative and we don't see as many examples of positive mimetic desire? That's the really tough thing. That's why it's so hard because we're, we're, social media has done this to us. We're pulled in a million different directions and we can lose sight of what it is that's actually important mm. in the first place. But as you say, a culture developed in such a way that we built moral guardrails. We developed religious thought, mores, taboos, all of those kinds of things to kind of lasso in our worst mimetic tendencies. And I think part of the problem, and this comes up as a theme often on this podcast, is that so many of those, and I call them moral umpires, on the on the football field of life have been eradicated, right? So we're playing this game with each other without rules and without umpires and whistles being blown, which means the game is no longer as much fun and it's, you know, it's very, very despairing at times. But I want to sort of, I don't know whether it's jumping forward or back, I want to really kind of get a feel for why Rene Girard has become so important, so popular, but particularly in Silicon Valley amongst the tech bros. Like, can you give a little bit of a feel for for why he's just become such a big deal? Well, that's ironic, right? It's really funny to think about because, you know, Gerard helps explain why certain ideas or why certain thinkers become fashionable. It's due to mimetic desire. Right? And he, he himself has become. So, a mimetic you know, trope. oftentimes this starts with it. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, you know, to use draw off his theory itself, he would say that oftentimes there needs to be some powerful model of desire that spreads by contagion. So, you know, one person who's particularly powerful or successful or respected who takes an interest in or has a desire to learn more about some thinker will kind of affect other people's desires by contagion. In Silicon Valley, that's probably Peter Thiel who's the co-founder of PayPal, who was, happened to be Rene Girard's student at Stanford uh, and happened to become extraordinarily successful. And, you know, talk about this thinker starting really in the, in the 90s. And I, I think, you know, I, I can't answer that question without referring to the influence of Peter, because a lot of young entrepreneurs look up to him as an iconic entrepreneur and investor. So the romantic lie would be to think that they all just sort of, you know, on their own, like took an interest in this, you know, who used to be an obscure French philosopher. I doubt that that's the case. I learned about René Girard from an old Jesuit priest in Italy, you know, so I had nothing to do with Peter in a, on, a, on a retreat. But I think that the ideas are, are attractive to anybody in business and especially anybody in Silicon Valley because mimesis can help explain how to generate a lot of interest and buzz and investment capital towards an idea or a company through mimesis. So, you know, somehow Elizabeth Holmes did this with Theranos. You know, she she had this like strange mimetic cult where people were like investing in her and trusting her because other people, right, who supposedly knew what they were doing, wanted to be involved in Theranos you know, you have companies that can create these flash valuations really quickly without a whole lot of substance behind them. And I would say that's really some kind of a mimetic process. Social media runs on mimesis. You know, Peter Thiel is famously the first investor in Facebook. And he said the reason he knew Facebook could be very powerful was because it was an engine of mimetic desire just by the very way that Facebook worked. 
So it explains all of these weird things about business and this, especially the startup world that seem to defy like rational explanation, like why some companies just tend to like take off and we write it off to luck often, or, you know, the people that found those companies like to set themselves up as geniuses. But more often than not, there's, if you really look under the hood, there is some mimetic process playing out that helps them gain a lot of traction. I'm interested, though, what the Jesuit priest found interesting about mimetic desire and Gerard's theories. <laughs> what was what was his interest back then? His interest back then was in the conflict and the scapegoat mechanism part of, of Gerard's theories. Got it. We were discussing a, a very famous incident of a stoning in the Bible that was prevented and this priest sort of understood that particular story as one of mimetic contagion that had been subverted and and flipped into the opposite kind of more positive mimetic process. So we had a long discussion about that. And he told me at the end, you'll, you'll understand what's going on here in the story much better if you read this thinker named Rene Girard. Okay, got it. Another example that you reference in the book, and I think the the Facebook example is is a prime one, but is the the sort of the creation story behind Lamborghini. It's really quite interesting what went on there. Can you can you talk out that story? Sure. So Ferraris were popular long before Lamborghinis. The the car company Lamborghini didn't even exist until the 1960s. And the founder of what would become the car company Lamborghini was the founder of a very successful tractor company in Italy. And uh, he was based at the Ferruccio uh, Lamborghini, started this tractor company about 20 miles down the road from where the Ferrari headquarters was based. And he was such a successful tractor entrepreneur that he himself owned several Ferraris, <laughs> the coolest car to own. So, you know, he's zipping around town in his Ferraris and he kept having problems with his with his cars. And, you know, he paid uh, a lot of money for these vehicles and the clutch kept going out in, in his cars. So the story goes one day he actually, you know, being a successful businessman himself, he had access to Enzo Ferrari himself, you know, the great founder of the Ferrari racing empire and confronted him and he told him about the problem with his cars and his clutches and said, I'm sick of coming in here to get this repaired. And you know, I don't I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the story is that, you know, Ferrari like laughed Lamborghini out of his office and told him to go back to making tractors. And Lamborghini went back to his own plant, his own manufacturing plant. And he said, Well, I'm gonna try to fix this problem myself and I'm gonna fix it and I'm gonna make this car even better than than Ferrari himself would. And he took one of the clutches out of his best tractor and he put it into his Ferrari and it never broke again. And you know, this <laughs> the clutch that he used in his tractor cost like 10% of whatever Ferrari was charging him to repair his clutch every time he had to go back in there. So this, to make a really long story short, was the impetus for Ferrari getting the idea to start a car company in the first place. You know, Ferrari had no rival at the time, right? Nobody would challenge him. But Lamborghini had manufacturing capability. He was an engineer by, by experience, by trade. And he happened to fix this Ferrari problem himself. So I would say that it was because of the rivalry and the slight that he felt at having Lamborghini, I'm sorry, having Ferrari tell him to go back to making tractors, 
that he decided to get into the business. And I don't know how long he expected to stay in the business, but he's still in business. And those cars sell very well today still. And, you know, the story of Lamborghini and Ferrari is a story of a mimetic rivalry. And I don't think that Lamborghinis would exist without that kind of origin story of him being ignited by this mimetic desire that he never had before. You know, the thought had never crossed his mind to start a car company until he had that encounter. So, you know, it's a great example, I think, of how mimetic desire can spur somebody to, to even start a new company in the first place. Yeah, you touched on this earlier. A big part of mimetic desire is this conflict, right? This rivalry that comes about. And a very central part of Rene Girard's thesis, and it's kind of counterintuitive, is that mimetic desire ultimately leads to conflict. And that most conflict comes about not because of our differences, <laughs> but because we are mimicking each other. Can you explain? how that works, because it is counterintuitive, isn't it? But it's the juicy bit of this theory. So if you understand the, how the theory works between two people, you know, you can sort of play it out on a social scale. You can play it out in a country or in a community or in a society. Gerard famously said that, you know, war is essentially a, a feud, right, that spreads. You know, it's a, you think of a duel, right, a duel between two people that eventually spreads to, to more and more people. You know, I, I love watching baseball. There's a couple of sports where fighting is part of the culture, right? Like hockey is one of them. In baseball, you know, it's we, we have these things like dugout clearing fights, right, where a catcher rushes the mound and you have you know, them fighting or them. And very quickly after that, one other person runs out of the dugout to join the fight. And then the third and Stacks fourth. Stacks on, as we say in Australia. Right? There's like some mimetic attraction. Yes. And pretty soon the whole teams are fighting each other. And this is, you know, maybe a superficial microcosm of what can happen in a society where people are kind of forced to take sides. There's sort of conflict tends to draw people in. It's like, oh, it's very difficult to sort of stay on the sidelines. We have to be drawn in. We're lured in. Social media does this very well. You know, it's like how it functions. Like people will say things for the sole purpose of causing division because it gets a ton of engagement. And you're sort of drawn mimetically into these debates and into this discourse that maybe you wouldn't even have cared about right? until you've been provoked into it. So somehow there are few things more mimetic than fear, anxiety, and anger. I mean, it seems to spread really, really quickly. And there's an imitative aspect to it that I think is heavily, heavily discounted. I mean, most of the people that get upset or that join want to convince themselves that they did it, you know, totally independently. You know, this causes like mass conflict, really. And it sort of feeds on itself until there's something to extinguish it. And you know, this is where Gerard introduced the idea of the scapegoat mechanism. And he said, really, the only way that societies historically have found some way to stop the kind of war of all against all is to find someone or something to project all of their anger and violence onto. And somehow, in some strange kind of paradoxical way, that causes them to turn away from each other and sort of stand shoulder to shoulder 
and imitate sort of one another in projecting blame onto somebody that stands at a distance from them, which has some kind of a protective function, right? It protects them from themselves. So this can be somebody that usually can't fight back, somebody that's very sort of easy to project onto, becomes a, a release valve for them. And, you know, that historically has been the way that, you know, this kind of mimetic runaway contagion is at least temporarily calmed. Can you give an example of a classic scapegoat in a mimetic driven conflict? As you say, the scapegoat has developed as, as a release valve, as the thing that can actually bring the conflict to an end in, you know, in smaller settings, but also at a social level. I'm sure there's some examples you have on hand um, that have happened, you know, in history. And then I'd like to take this into a discussion as to how it exists today, because I think that's going to be really easy to understand because there are scapegoats aplenty. Yeah. So, you know, this, the scapegoat mechanism, I, I'll give you, I'll go right back to the ritual and then I'll just, I'll, I'll give you another, another example. So in ancient Israel, the, you know, every single year in Yom Kippur, there was a ritual where the high priest took two goats. One of them was selected to be sacrificed inside of the temple and the other goat was referred to as the scapegoat and was ritually, the the high priest prayed over this goat and ritually transferred all of the sins of the people once a year onto the, the, the back of this goat. And then everybody collectively drove this goat out into the desert to a demon that lived in the desert. And in a way, this this purged all of the tiny little conflicts that the people had between themselves and symbolically transferred them onto the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was driven out into the wilderness. So there's some highly, highly cathartic effect about that, right? You're sort of under the illusion that, you know, whatever problems you had, whatever envy, jealousy, anger, hatred that you had is now lives inside of this animal that's been driven out of the desert. So I think it's important to just know that this is this is where the word comes from. It comes comes from a 16th century yeah, translation of the Bible describing that very right. And this pattern of scapegoating was practiced very explicitly in the ancient world. You know, like the, the Greeks, anytime there was a, a, a plague, for instance, or something, some physical problem in the city or, or violence, they would very typically find somebody, single somebody out, often somebody who was crippled, who was blind, and they would bring this person up to the top of a mountain and collectively inch towards that person until they they fell off the the mountain. So we could just we can go through so many different examples, horrible examples throughout history of where this plays out on a mass scale. Nazi Germany is the one that comes to most easy to mind, right? But then in, in very small cases too. I mean, to make this real, I mean, how often does this happen within a family, right? We call it the black sheep. How often does this happen inside of a company or on a sports team? We have like the ritual firing of the coach and the certain player, like all the blame is heaped on them. So it plays out in these small ways, but it plays out in these very, very serious ways too, where there's real violence done. It's not always physical violence. I think it, it used to always be physical violence, but less less and less probably today. I mean, it's very often, you know, ruining somebody's reputation or violence that is done to, to somebody's livelihood, all different kinds of ways that this plays out. But you'll notice the pattern, right? It's, it's always some 
collective action that has some cathartic effect for the people that are involved in doing it. It somehow brings them closer together. It somehow expunges them of any guilt that they have. And I would just encourage everybody to think seriously about where you've seen this play out, you know, in your own life. In your own yeah. Career. Well, I think the first uh, place that I'm thinking of is social media. You know, as a as an older woman, a middle-aged woman in the public eye, I can sort of vouch for the fact that, you know, mimetic desire produces this conflict. And quite often I do feel that the comments that I get, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or wherever it might be, are not so much, you know, just going back to that idea that mimetic desire leads to conflict more so than difference, is that it's not so much that people are always disagreeing with with what I'm saying. It's more that they're having to join the herd, the pack that's doing the pile on to render neutral or to remedy some kind of cognitive dissonance that they might be feeling. And that, I feel, does tie into the scapegoat because quite often scapegoats today are people who may put their head up, you know, the the tall poppy that puts their head up and maybe says something that challenges the status quo, that holds a mirror up to people's shameful behaviours. You know, I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg as something of a scapegoat in the whole dynamic of of kind of the collective guilt we feel about having caused, you know, this climate crisis, this climate emergency. So it's, it is really often the scapegoat is often also the person who I think, yeah, challenges and actually precipitates this kind of coalescing, this even stronger coalescing into these herds, these gangs on social media as a way to protect cognitive dissonance. I'm using a whole heap of, you know, psychological babble there, but I'm wondering if that's something that Gerard spoke about or whether you've contemplated when applying his theories to the current social media climate and the way that we're doing discourse today, which is extremely fragmented. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Absolutely. I mean, the scapegoat disrupts or threatens the illusory order and unity of a group. And that's why people turn against the scapegoat um, by saying things that are inconvenient, right? By disrupting this sort of false order. It's an order held together by lies, 
right? So there's, you know, there's a couple, you know, there's, there can be order that's held together by some truths, or there can be order that's held together by lies. You know, think of a family where everything on the outside is peaceful, but nobody ever tells the truth to anybody else. It's sort of somehow the order is built on lies. And then what happens when somebody actually is honest with somebody else in that family? It completely throws the whole social order, which is based on lies, into absolute chaos. And the odds of that person getting scapegoated and everybody talking about that person behind their back is extraordinarily high. And on social media, where we see this play out, and I I have personally seen this and been involved in it, and I know what it feels like to be part of that mimetic process. You're right. And it's a really important point that the people that will come after a scapegoat or somebody who says something that gets the right people's attention, it's not necessarily because they disagree with you, but they are competing mimetically to join the other people that are disagreeing with you. And perhaps because they want the same thing that those other people want, which is to be could be to be seen as virtuous. It could be to be seen as called, you know, an independent thinker, ironically as that is, um, to be seen as, you know, just and, you know, not standing for wrong speak, all, all different kinds of things. But if you think about the mimetic process that is playing out, somehow it's because the people at some deep, deep level want the same thing, not primarily because they disagree with you. And I've had people come to me and say, you have to speak out against this. Everybody else is. And it could be something that I actually I, I don't agree with. Right. But it's the it's the pressure that's put on me to like you have to say something about this. And if you don't, then who's scapegoated next? Me. I am. Right. Because I have not joined the sort of mimetic process. And I have a fundamental belief that nobody should really be forced to manifest their conscience because it's a form of violence to the conscience itself, in my opinion. I think that the conscience is a, is a very profoundly sacred and spiritual thing, kind of the seed of freedom in, 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 in inside of somebody. And to put a gun to somebody else's head and to force them to say what they think about every single thing that's happening in the world. First of all, you don't have to have a, a, a view about everything. Some, sometimes it takes months or years to even wrap your head around how you, where you do stand on something, morally speaking. But we live in a world now where you know one thing happens and within an hour, you've got to have something to say about it, right? You're forced to manifest your conscience. And I find that does violence to the very conscience itself and sort of makes it something that's much more superficial than it actually is. My point here is not that you should not speak out against injustice or against evil. My point is that very often this thing that's incredibly, in my view, sacred, very spiritual, something that's very personal and intimate, it's just an intimate thing, should not be kind of attacked and forced to, I mean, in some ways, it's like asking somebody to dress in public every day. You know, it's like, you know, they, they, they should be the ones to be in charge of how much they want to disclose these intimate things about issues that can be very, very personal to them.
Mm. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. It sort of goes counter to some of those, you know, between the war existential thinkers. I'm thinking Hannah Arendt and Dale, you know, who were very much about, you know, well, very against the person who sat in in the the booths and watched what was happening in the arena. But anyway, I, I think, yeah, going back to that idea of the scapegoat and the herd mentality that we see so often, it reminds me of a study, Luke, that was done during COVID trying to explain how it was that so many people joined conspiracy theories in and around COVID, COVID, the, the effectiveness of masks and, and vaccines and so on. And one that came out showed that it really was because people so often when there's a, they're in a time of threat, you know, which for a lot of people COVID was, and I think it was collectively, they will actually prioritise belonging to the tribe over rational information. So on Facebook, they would share information that was um, presented to them by friends that they knew was wrong about, you know, the pandemic, but they would share it to basically signal their adhesion to the, the tribe. And that, you know, really speaks to mimetic desire, doesn't it? And, and then, of course, if somebody pops up, a friend pops up and go, hang on, do you really believe that? You know, they post a comment, you know, how come you're sharing this thing about, you know, I don't know, chemtrails or, or whatever it might be? I know that you don't really believe that so quickly that that friend that pops up, you know, becomes a scapegoat in their lives. And we saw this. I mean, I think everybody listening would have somebody in their lives that they've lost to conspiracy theories and and that kind of pile-on that happened during COVID and in the wake of COVID. Are there any other examples that you see happening in social media that speak to this theory that Gerard sort of fleshed out but probably couldn't have predicted would come so much to life, you know, several decades after his original thesis. Yeah, Gerard passed away in 2015, which for me, I mean, I know social media has been around long before then, but for me, that's around the year when something really seemed to change, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And in the last few years of his life, he wasn't in good health anyway, so he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have seen that. But People would rather be wrong than alone. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know. That's a short way of saying what I I just tried to explain there. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. They they would rather be wrong than alone because being alone is is terrifying. And, you know, without any tribe, it's just much easier to be singled out as, as a scapegoat. Much easier for people to pile on. I see it accelerating on social media and it's really shocking. I mean, how easy it is to get drawn into various theories because of the power of other people and the quantities of other people that are pushing them. You know, I remember when the Progozin sort of uprising happened in, you know, in, in, in Russia, and I got drawn into a Twitter spaces. I don't even know how I got into that space in the first place. But I spent, I'm embarrassed to say, I spent like five or six hours listening to this thing and heard the most outrageous things and speculation going on from like people that aren't journalists, like total amateurs, just everybody has an opinion about it and got totally sort of sucked into this. And I just, I watched in kind of horror as, you know, just kept growing and grew the room, kept growing and growing and growing. Then you get people that claim all kinds of authority that are in there, but you really don't even know who these people are. And I just remember thinking when I, when I left, first of all, how bad I felt. I just felt like I'd just been just totally whiplash, like I'd been caught up in some kind of a riptide. 
And it made me think to myself that we have some kind of a crisis of authority in, in the world, but especially on social media. Like you said earlier, Sarah, like, well, you know, there, there are no more referees or umpires or anything like that. And that is so true on social media. Like everybody, it's like everybody's, who are the models, right? Everybody's sort of like looking around, like, is there anybody home? Are there any adults in the room? Like who's, I don't know. It's like, totally. so I think it's, it's created this crisis of what, what Gerard would refer to. It's a technical term, but he would call it a crisis of undifferentiation where we don't, we don't even know what or who to pay attention to in this crisis of authority, which I saw so clearly in that Twitter spaces. And sure enough, 99% of what I heard turned out to be totally absolute bullshit. And it was just a real wake up call for me. I mean, I did it partly as a study in mimesis. I hate doing stuff like that because it's like, I feel like I'm endangering myself by doing it, but it was just, it, it, it just shows like how easy it is for conspiracy theories to spread because I found myself like, whoa, what if he's right? Because you can all, that's always what if, right? Like what, what if this is true? And there's always that sort of inkling of doubt in the back of your mind that you don't want to be seen as a quote idiot, or you don't want to be seen as naive and all of these sort of like epithets that are leveled at people that don't get on board, um, make it really, it's really tempting to just get on the train. Luke, I'm wondering if you can tell us what we can actually do with our understanding of this theory. How can we actually become more mature and artful with this kind of tendency that seems to be innate in human nature? And I think, you know, we all want to do better. And we also want to access true desire and a meaningful life beyond the trends and the pressures and the keeping up with the Joneses. I think, you know, ultimately, so that we might be able to have our lives contribute to a more meaningful life at a broader scale. And I think you explain a bit of this in terms of thin and thick desires. Can you talk us through how that works? Well, there's certainly very simple things that we can do when we realize that how th- simply mimetic some of our desires actually are, often driven by social media or or the media in general, you know, television, film, the Kardashians, whatever. When we realize how superficial some of these desires are, and I would say almost 100% mimetic. I like to tell the story about how during the pandemic, I, I, I was writing a book on this topic, and I had all kinds of highly mimetic desires. You know, just from scrolling Instagram, you know, I wanted to rent a van and travel around the U.S. for for a year and stuff like that. And it was just because I, you know, I saw this lifestyle that was heavily curated and seemed very glamorous for like a day. And then I forgot all about it and realized I'd be miserable doing that. But there are certain people or genres or things that we can follow that if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that it's not actually Um, there is nothing solid there. You know, it's just sort of we either hate watching or we're doing it just to titillate ourselves and to imagine some fantasy life that we're never actually going to have. We're just, we're wasting our time. So I think blocking out, first of all, just being aware of who your models are. Um, Most of us don't know who our models of desire are, but if you, if you begin to bring this to your conscious awareness, you become aware, you can put boundaries in place to protect those things. I call those thin desires because they're highly mimetic and ephemeral and fleeting And the definition of a thin desire is something that you can be inflamed with desire for today, but a week from now, certainly a year from now, you may have not even remembered that you wanted it at all, right? It just doesn't have any real substance there. And what I refer to as a thick desire is is a kind of desire that's 
not as mimetic, maybe not mimetic at all, right? It's something core to who you are, something that I identify maybe with your vocation, right? Something with that's a deep, deep calling that, you know, you can, you, it's a desire that you can trust to pursue because it's not fleeting and ephemeral. And one of the most powerful exercises that I, I, I've done in my own life that I talk about in the book is an exercise of mining your own life for your thick desires. And this involves an exercise of the memory, going back in your life, maybe to the time you know, as early as you can possibly remember. And think about those times when you were engaged in deeply in fulfilling satisfying activities and where that satisfaction or that joy that you felt from that activity that you were engaged in was really enduring, right? It it lasted for a long time. And perhaps even now, as you recall it, it brings you joy just even thinking about it. That, That is a sign that there's something more substantial about that activity that you were engaged in than you know, the pursuit of some thin desire that you got from an Instagram influencer. And I believe if we if we go back and we seriously do this in our lives and we, we dig up, I mean, hopefully, I think everybody has dozens of these stories, but it took me years to, to uncover and unearth all of mine. If you find these stories, 9, 10, 11, 12 of them, you might begin to see patterns in the kinds of things that are thick desires for you. So, you know, a thick desire for me is, you know, beautiful music and reading classical literature, all these things that I totally forgot were thick desires for me as I was just caught up in the throes of my Silicon Valley startup life for many, many years. And I remembered them and it helped me like sift through the kinds of desires I wanted to invest in and the kinds of desires that I just wanted to let go. And some of the ones that I needed to let go were like my desire for certain kinds of stupid recognition for my companies or something like that. And I realized, you know, those desires will make me happy for maybe a day maximum, and then they're not going to be that important to me anymore. Yeah, it's a bit like Voltaire's line, you know, cultivate your garden. And it's a lifelong practice. It really is. But the thick and thin desires is a really wonderful lens, I guess, you know, by which you can you can access what you really want within the confines of always being subject to this mimetic desire impulse. I guess on a final note, I would love some advice from you for scapegoats. You know, there's many of us in the world who the the person who calls out the elephant in the room at the family dinner table or hold the mirror up in certain relationships. I think women are often scapegoats. They have been throughout history. If you think of some of these people who were stoned who were sacrificial, it's generally been women. And today it takes the form of, of gaslighting. You know, there's a problem that maybe a man has, has produced, you know, and what do you do? Oh, you blame the female reaction to that. And I guess also just as a sort of an additional thought there, I often think that scapegoats are often those, those first modelers, right? You know, if you think Greta Thunberg, she was a scapegoat, but she was putting up some ideas that were very original and, of course, have been mimicked by teenagers and adults alike ever since. And I'm wondering if there's some wisdoms that you can provide to scapegoats, people who are feeling like, you know, they're being metaphorically stoned for speaking up 
and being that person who goes out on the limb, is in the arena, puts their head above the poppies and so on. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about Greta Thunberg. And, you know, she embodies the scapegoat almost to an eerie, I mentioned her in Wanting and as, as a scapegoat, by the way. And, you know, she, even her sort of like coming to the US, you know, sort of in, in the electric ship and, you know, it was kind of like uh, this, this, this strange sort of figure shows up on the shore. And, you know, it's like it had almost these mythological sort of like almost bound to become the scapegoat, right? Who threatens our ideas. And I think one of the things that strikes me about her in particular, and, and this is advice, I think, for everybody, and it's very difficult advice to accept, but it seems like she's made some kind of peace with uh, b- being reviled by many people and becoming a scapegoat. In other words, you know, the truth is somehow more important than, you know, the reputation that I have among some crowds or something like that. And there's a, there's a, some kind of a dying to self that I, I feel like has to sort of happen, right? Like, you know, not holding on to some kind of, you know, the courage to be disliked, that phrase kind of comes to mind a little bit, right? To, to be able to speak the truth and, and to bear the consequences, knowing that it's ultimately better for you in the long run. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend like going around, you know, trying to become a scapegoat. You know, there, there are situations where I, I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of untruths, you know, being told. And I, I don't necessarily view it as my job to sort of go in there like a wrecking ball every time I encounter these things because life is too short. And, you know, part of the beauty of having or sort of knowing what you're, you know, what you're meant to be doing or a sense of vocation is that you can pick your battles and be a little bit wiser in, in which ones you, you you pick. But I, you're right about women, too. I mean, historically, like I told you about the story about, you know, that that old priest that I was having that conversation with in Italy. And we were talking about the stoning of the, the, the woman in, in the Gospel of John. And how that that process of scapegoating was completely subverted in that story, because people's consciences were 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 somehow pricked in a way that made them sort of come back to themselves and snap out of the mimetic process that they were in. I mean, this is a story where Jesus famously says, "He who is without sin cast the first stone." And they they and they drop the stones and they walk away, beginning with the elders, right? That's somehow a really important little detail in the story. Beginning with the elders or the most respected older people in the community who are in some sense models. So you can imagine in your mind's eye, one of them, right? Put put down the stone, and then the second, and then the third, and then every stone that was put down, it sudden, suddenly got easier to put down the next one. And this is a positive mimetic process. It's the exact opposite one that happened right before she was about to be stoned. Right at the very moment when somebody was about to throw the first stone, they were they were called they were called back to their humanity in some sense, their conscience. And, and were forced to sort of confront the fact that they had all also committed serious crimes, right? And coming right back to the question of conscience, which I, which I obviously think is very important, right? So it, it is, I, I do think it's, it's somehow breaking the mimetic contagion that makes people get formed into a group or a crowd or a mob and forget their sense of self and their sense of responsibility for their own actions, that's what's really important to be able to do. 
Yeah, I think it is cold comfort for scapegoats to accept that, you know, truth is more important than reputation and that kind of thing. But I think an awareness of the role of the scapegoat today, scapegoats used to sort of almost be hidden. That sort of mechanism was hidden. Now we're very aware of it. The whole dialogue around cancel culture and woke speak and all of this kind of things that people means that people are even aware of taking on the scapegoat victim mentality because it actually can suit them. So it's become extremely complex, I think, you know, now that we're becoming more sophisticated and and aware of these these ideas. But one challenge I'm going to put to you, Luke, is I, I feel that if so often women ask scapegoats, or even if it's not women, maybe a marginalized person who speaks truth to power and and puts their head 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 up above the the poppies so to speak i almost feel that it is the role of let's say white men you know in 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 that example you used they were the elders the elders had the power today you know white men get mimicked and emulated by younger men and so i think there's a real role for men to step into the breach and be the models of this better behaviour using these ideas of mimetic desire to almost protect certain people from not being pummeled too hard as scapegoats. It's, I, I feel that that's where we're at culturally today, that there is, there's responsibility. There's responsibility and there is opportunity for people to be the right models. We can sit here and, and, and lament the lack of moral boundaries, moral umpires. You know, where are all the adults? Where are all the leaders? We've all got the opportunity to, to do that if, particularly if, we are the kind of person that gets mimicked in, in the culture that we exist in today. I, I agree. And, and I think one of the ways that people can do that and have a tremendously positive effect, and this doesn't happen enough, is when somebody sees something happening in their own crowd, in their own political party, in their own sort of intra sort of tight knit crowd where there is unity. So often, like people will not call out other people that are in their own group even when they disagree with them for the sake of the unity or the friendship or because they've done favors and it, it creates a really toxic environment. And I think it's powerful when you see somebody else speak truth, not speaking truth to power, yes, but speaking, speaking truth to somebody that they are, are a peer to and say, no, that's not that is not helpful, that is not acceptable, that is, this is why this is toxic. I don't really see enough of that, right? It's like friends kind of take care of their friends, but that's not a great friendship if it's not actually based on the truth. And it sends a perception to people on the outside that all of those people are in agreement, right? So whether it's politicians, whether it's the white men, whether it's, you know, the people that actually have the power to be able to use the authority that they do have to model a different kind of behavior and not just acquiesce or business as usual and to not say anything, I think that would be a powerful change. But very few people seem to have the courage to actually do that. Hmm. The invite's the invites always there. And, and you know, I would say, you know, we we need those kinds of people. As a white woman who's, you know, in middle ages, I feel I've got that power and and I often do feel I need to use it and probably more often than I do to step in it is really powerful I know that when I'm on the receiving end of a pylon to have you know there's a sort of a bunch of older white male scientists 
who will come in and defend me. And it is probably the only thing that works, the only thing to to quieten things down. And, you know, it doesn't take much and they don't cop it back like, you know, like I am at the time. So anyone listening who has got that ability to be that person, I do invite, I invite you to do it because we need to actually ensure that this mimetic desire doesn't turn us into these rivalrous beings, you know, dumping on scapegoats, the very people that are probably going to be the thinkers, the creators, the idea generators that will take us into better places down the track. That's right. Yep. And I, I, I would exhort everybody to just, you know, think seriously about, you know, who you are, what, where, with the position that you're in, what you can do and your relationship to the truth. And, and then we together, I think, thinking about you know, who are the scapegoats in our society. And very often they are people that are saying the very things, doing the very things that we need to hear the most, but we can't possibly fully hear if our first reaction is a mimetic reaction, if our first reaction is defensiveness. And it's hard not to, because this mimetic impulse is very powerful. Um, it's sort of hardwired into us to be mimetic. And, you know, you can't, you cannot be not mimetic. That's not the goal here is to be unmimetic because it would make you not human, right? But it's to simply be aware of this, to sort of know what it feels like. And then you have the freedom to respond to it. You have the agency to respond, right? Your response is not determined, right? We can all choose. We can be more mature and artful. Hey, Luke, thank you so much for a wonderfully robust conversation. And I'll have all the details of your book, Wanting, in the notes. It's out now in all good bookstores pretty much around the world, from what I can gather. You've been published in a bunch of different languages. Good luck with everything that you're doing. And I also encourage everyone to follow you over on Substack, where you discuss these ideas apply them to pop, popular culture and, and other things happening in the news. It's, uh, it's a really interesting way to dissect what's going on in the world. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Enjoyed it. I like Luke's line at the end there, mine your own life for thick desires. Of course, it's easier said than done. How do you do this? Well, I think it's mostly about getting still and quiet and stepping away from the mimetic laboratory that is social media and bravely going through your habitual hankerings and assessing each and every one of them. And I know that Luke actually does go away for a week, a year to do exactly this, to do a sort of an inventory of his desires. I tend to write about this a lot and I collect quotes from creatives who've done this, who've gone through their life and worked out what really matters to them um, and who then go on to cultivate their own gardens, as Voltaire once wrote. I find that studying how other people, you know, big minds, found their thick desires helps me to do the same. I guess you could say I mimic their mindset, their alarm, their, their sort of openness as they do so. And I think that working out what matters to you is in many ways one of the most important things we can set out to do, for the answer speaks to what we value. Today, of course, we value what we desire. Desire has such a big pull, but if desire is not something that really stems from our values, then we have a bit of a problem there. But then if we flip the equation and we work out what we value, if we work out our thick desires and then create desire from around those, well, we might get onto something of a better track. 
I found learning about all this stuff helpful for understanding where we're at in life today. As Luke says, we're not going to beat mimetic desire, right? It's sort of, it's hardwired into our DNA, but we can gamify it. We can develop workarounds and be more artful. But I depart from Luke's thinking a little here. I do think that we should be challenged on our conscience if we are in a position to protect a scapegoat or to elevate um, models of good ideas and ways forward that are probably going to be shattered down by the status quo. The rivalrous behaviour in our world today is dialing up. We will need to intervene to prevent our worst excesses from bringing down good behavioural advances. It's a responsibility and I, I have that responsibility and I probably don't step up to it as often as I should. Anyway, it's all food for thought. As I say, you might like to engage with Luke over at his Substack on all of this. It's where he now chooses to engage in commentary and dialogue on all of this. And it's the same with me. It's exactly where I choose to engage in, I guess, robust and informed and thick commentary. So if any of you have feedback on this or other episodes, feel free to chime in on the comments section of my Substack. The link is in the show notes. I'll see you over there. And until next week, stay wild. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.